Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Ed Balls is certainly used to rolling up his sleeves when it comes to the world of politics, but for a special program for the BBC, he's been applying that elbow grease to the care sector. Inside the Care Crisis sees the former shadow chancellor, whose mother has severe dementia, spend two weeks working in a care home to understand the gruelling reality faced by staff. I spoke with him earlier today and began by asking what inspired him to take on the series. Care homes were so in the news over the last year because of the pandemic and the huge loss of life and all of the the challenges that they have um, faced. But there is like a, a deeper crisis in care homes, which has been going on for a long time around funding and esteem and um, the really tough time even before the pandemic care homes had in getting getting staff. And I guess I come into this partly as a former government minister who was part of a government which didn't solve that care crisis and also for the last three years my mum has lived in a care home in Norwich so I've seen it as a family member before and during the the pandemic from the inside and when the BBC suggested making these films I think the thing I wanted to do was not to to do it as a current affairs documentary but really try to get on the inside and understand it for myself and for all of us and that's why um, after a lot of negotiation the, the group of care homes in Scarborough called St Cecilia has allowed us to, to move in. And I, I, I lived and worked there for a fortnight, which is what you see in episode one. And then I also do unpaid care and domiciliary care in episode two. Let's get um, the political bit uh, over and done with, because as you say in the programme, and, it, and it's one of the striking elements of, of the series, is, is, is you address the guilt that, that you feel professional and personal about not getting uh, to grips with the social care sector in terms of its funding and so on. What were the challenges that you faced? Why didn't you manage to get to grips with it? I think the guilt is about understanding and comprehension, because we knew that there were challenges in care, but they weren't up the political agenda in the same way as schools and the National Health Service 
were we had a tax rise for the NHS, transformed the NHS, it became cross-party that the NHS was something to be protected. And for some reason, social care never got the same profile as that or as schools. And I think it's it goes to a deeper point about, about care. Most of us um, in our lives have a lot of contact with the National Health Service, GPs, going to hospital, um, when our kids are born. Of course, we all go to school and many of us then deal with school as parents. But it's possible to go through your life and never actually engage with the care system at all, or at least not till you, know, you are much older. And it's also a subject, as we find out in episode two, I talked to a vet about this. We find it hard to talk about it. And we don't really actually want to talk about you know, the kind of care we might want in the future. Quite difficult. To be honest, it's much nicer to talk about what you can do. Today, yeah, or tomorrow. Or your holiday next year. And <laughs> yeah. as a result, it feels as though, because it's never been front and centre of the public consciousness, it's allowed politics to not give it the priority it needs until suddenly in the pandemic, it's a crisis. And we see quite, quite how challenged this hugely important sector is. I want to talk to you about the programmes and the content of the programmes. But before we go into that, you know, as you say, we're, it seems we're only now waking up to the, the scale and complexity of, of, of the social care system. How much work do you think it's going to take for us to transform it uh, like what you mentioned uh, with the NHS in the, in the early 2000s? Well, it's, of course, about money. And the government has announced a tax rise, the national insurance rise for health and for social care and a cap on costs which any individual will have to pay. We don't know yet how much money is going to actually get through to the, the care system. But I think the message from the films, the thing I learned is that it's also about the, the fragility of this hugely decentralised system where individual care homes are often on the edge of bankruptcy from week to week, month to month. And also the fact that that decentralisation, that fragmentation means that for people going into care, there's nothing like the same kind of pay, but also career structure progression that you see in the NHS. In the first episode, I meet a 19-year-old called Cameron who wants to be a paramedic. And if he does become a paramedic, I hope he does, because he'd be brilliant at it. He'd have a career structure, his pay would go up, he could move around the country. In, 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 in care, that just isn't there. And as a result, um, as the carers say all the time, people think of us doing an unskilled job just a carer you're just a carer when you actually go and do the job as I did on my hands and knees dealing with the personal care of somebody with dementia it is so hard and skilled and sophisticated and in a way I think you see in 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 the films I I'm shocked that I thought I understood what being a carer was because of my mum and because of my time as an MP and actually you realize that I didn't really understand until I actually went in and did it Mm. And then on top of all of that, you know, the, the struggles that they've been through in the in the last couple of years and, and, and I, the, 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 the woman who heads up uh, the home that you were at, the, it's St. Cecilia's, actually tears up when she remembers the, the two weeks during which a, a lot of patients there died. Then on top of that, you now have this um, issue with compulsory vaccinations. I guess we'll find out at the end of November how many people have left the care system as a result of, of mandatory vaccinations. Do you think that that's just another, you know, for, for people working in care homes, that's just another sense that they are not important, that they're not relevant? Well, so Cecilia's goes from a, a crisis of empty beds to then 
again, we're back to the crisis of turnover and vacancies, really hard to attract the staff. And that's partly about pay, but it's also about um, esteem. I think the most, the most painful thing for me in the programme is when the care workers in Cecilia say people were clapping for the NHS, but they weren't clapping for us, even though what we'd done was so hard and exposed. And that's why I think this issue of the, the vaccine now is very difficult because it comes on top of those, as you said, the tears reveal scars of pain and hurt and, and some anger that people have been ignored. As the son of um, an 82-year-old in a care home, I mean, to be honest, I want care workers to be, be vaccinated. I want them to be double vaccinated because, because I want my mum to be, to be safe. And I understand where the Secretary of State is coming from on this and in the NHS as well. And of course, you have to have exemptions for medical reasons or for kind of for moral religious reasons. But I'm not sure if I wanted to be voluntary. Having said that, there is a massive problem at the moment in terms of recruitment in care. We um, have been hearing from the care sector all week about that. And that's why in Wales and Scotland, they haven't gone for compulsion. They've gone for persuasion. The Secretary of State has decided to go for compulsion in the National Health Service, but not until next year. But at the moment, there's a recruitment crisis in care and he's moving very quickly. And I just wonder whether, you know, I want him to do it, but I wonder whether he doesn't need to look again at the timetable because I want my mum to be safe because people are vaccinated, but I don't want her to be unsafe because there aren't enough staff in care homes because tens of thousands of people suddenly have to leave because they've not been double jabbed. So, you know, I kind of I sympathise with how hard it is for state, but I kind of want him to to think again about this and think about the timetable. That wasn't a, a political answer. That was a diplomatic answer, which is something I've never thought I'd get from you. Um, well, I think it was a very honest answer to you, to to um, be honest. I mean, I think it's really hard, and I, you know, I want him to double vaccinate staff, but I don't want him to do that in a way which destabilises the care system right now. And that's I'm sure what he is worrying about today as well. And I think there are lots of care voices out there saying, think about the timetable. And I think maybe that's what he'll do. Tell me uh, about how you approach the programme, because as you've described, you really do uh, get completely hands on. Were you at any point reticent about the idea of going in and living in this care home and working as a carer? I wasn't reticent about the idea sometimes the the reality was quite hard to 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 deal with I think the but you know I've been in a wrestling ring and I've been tasered in America um for um for documentaries so this is not the first time um that um that I've had to deal with this kind of thing and uh, I drew the line at being Botoxed when I was in Mar-a-Lago in um Donald Trump's hometown but um compared to that these didn't seem to be um difficult things for me to do but I think if you're going to win but, the trust but actually stuff, Ed Ed you know as a viewer they look like very difficult things to do they are very much at the heart of what makes uh, you know people carers and other people not carers you know the sure. tenderness the care the the, the washing uh, you know 90 year old women and doing it gently and kindly and allowing them their dignity you know the, the spoon feeding right. people in the home who, who couldn't feed themselves and it's not everyone who can walk in and, and do that sort of work I think that in principle when I thought about it in advance I thought it was going to be easier um, than being than being tasered but when you actually as you say faced with the reality the reality was different to what I expected I was trained I had to experience it myself and you suddenly realize that this is you know, it's not like um, you know 
feeding a three-year-old child because the, the the principle is that the person being fed must be in charge and because they're a human being and they're an adult and they must make the choices and I realized when I've, I was on my hands and knees with Phyllis about to wash and apply this special cream to her legs that you know that she's a human being and her dignity is important and finding a way to do this which felt comfortable for her I mean this is not something I'd ever done before but actually I discovered in the moment how much more difficult and subtle and sophisticated it was and you know I was kind of having to fight this part of me wants to think you know god this is too hard and then thinking but I mustn't do that not simply because I've got a camera um, behind me but also because this is her life and I've got to treat the situation with respect and from that and all the personal care I then did for over those that that couple of weeks you know doing it as you say in a way which is empathetic and human and sensitive and caring is so much more difficult um, than doing things to people I think I probably went on in thinking care was about doing things to people and actually you realize that it's um it's much more skilled and subtle than that. And that's what I had to learn to do. What they say in the care homes is that they can tell within 24 hours if somebody can do the job or not. And often people leave because they just can't do it. And uh, luckily I got through 24 hours and um, I hope I passed the test. What do you think represented the biggest challenges that carers have to deal with? I mean, they must require incredible levels of patience for a start. You know, you, there was Frank, the de- dementia uh, patient, who, who was really quite aggressive a lot of the time uh, with the carers. So I think, um, th- th- as you say, uh, patients um, walking the line between getting things done, but doing so in a way which is respectful, especially when somebody like Frank is very kind of upset about what's happening because if the care wasn't done he would be in a very unsafe place but they never ever kind of forced the issue they absorbed the pressure and it was always by consent what happens actually in episode two is I then go to um to, to spend a couple of days with unpaid carers and then also I do a day of domiciliary care with a guy called John in Nosley in Liverpool and my day with John um we did 16 visits in 14 hours uh, in the first visit in half an hour, we had to get somebody out of bed. He had to be washed, commode, dressed, make his breakfast, give his medication, have a cup of tea, have a chat and get out in half an hour. And what you realise that for John, unlike in the care home where if something goes wrong, you can press the button and people run to help. John was in every visit normally alone. He arrives at seven in the morning, whatever he finds there he has to deal with. If somebody had fallen or had a stroke, he is the first line. And he's also dispensing in every visit medication to people. In the care home and that was done in the nursing home by nurses, John does it himself. All of that he's paid £9.30 an hour. And um, he gets paid his full rate only for the actual time he's on the visits. And the, 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 the responsibility he has and the care he delivers for the money it's astonishing and uh but then of course in unpaid care the guy called Derek who looks after his wife yes. picture, he does it all day 365 days a year on his own I mean astonishing what what people manage to do and uh I don't think we understand the half of it ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You um, made the decision to include a visit with your mum, Carolyn, in the programme. You hadn't seen her for 16 months because of the pandemic, um, and she's at a care home because of her vascular dementia. Um, How did you come to the decision to include her in the programme, and why? What did you think it would bring to it? Well, the decision wasn't made until after I'd done um, my first um, couple of weeks in in Scarborough. And from the beginning, I said to the BBC, you know, that, that, that I can go with a set of experiences and, you know, I can talk about the fact that I'm a son as well as a former politician, but this is not going to be my story. This is about the care homes, the care workers and the national picture. And that's what I wanted to do. I think there was two things which changed, maybe three things, two things. Um, One was that I found as I was kind of quite shocked how much I was learning, I was relating a lot of that back to what I had thought I'd known and what me and my sister and brother thought we knew about um, my mum's care. It was, I think it was also an issue that I was talking to lots of family members in Scarborough who hadn't been able to see their loved ones for the last year. They were just starting half an hour visit a week. Why was this guy turning up and able to be with their loved ones all day? And I think it was quite important to show that I actually also was a son who hadn't been able to see my mum for 60 months and I, and, and I understood the position they were in and kind of felt very empathetic towards it because I'd experienced that. Also, in the end, the the chat with my mum, I hope, reveals some things about dementia. And I think it's an important theme. It's kind of below the surface in the film because the, the films are mainly about care and the organisation of care and the challenges for residents, for families. But there's also, I think, an important thing to hear about humanity which is it's so easy for us to think, well, you know, people with dementia, people as they get to end of life, they've sort of lost their their humanness, their essence. And I think over these films, especially actually in episode two with Frank, you see that deep within the dementia, he's still Frank and he's still a human being who has rights, but also deserves to be respected and to be be loved. And even though my mum has quite severe dementia, it's still in there, her. And... I think it's important people understand that dementia changes you so much and in ways which are actually kind of tragic, but it doesn't fundamentally remove the person. And, um, and I think I decided that this was a way to, to, 
to show that as well. So does it hurt in advance? But does it hurt when you when your mum doesn't recognise you? My mum's got dementia as well and is in the home as a result of it. Well, of course it does, and I think um, that's I think also partly why the pandemic was so hard because you know for the for the three or four times I'd been to see my mum before the pandemic started, she hadn't recognised me, and you know, but I go, I want to make sure she's safe and happy. And, you know, I sing a couple of ABBA songs and take a WhatsApp photo for everybody else and walk away feeling, as you know, a bit disappointed. Um, my dad back then was going, you know, most days. And then during the pandemic, when he couldn't go visit at all, and then when it was just one visit a week and behind like a glass screen, and I think for my dad in particular, and so many other family members who have had this experience, if you haven't seen your loved one for months and you can only do one half hour a week and in that half hour, they don't recognise you. It's really hard. And because he, he would, the, the, the thing about dementia is my mum wouldn't be thinking about if my dad for the next yeah. five days until he came back. But my dad would be thinking about that all the time. And, um, and that's really, really, really hard. And so talking to my sister, in the car on the way to see my mum on the film and she said how, how are you feeling I, I, I was very honest I said I'm you know I always really lower my expectations because I don't want to be disappointed but actually there was this moment when she looked at me with a sort of what are you up to a bit like she would have done in the in the past when I did crazy things and so there was you know there was that moment where you thought actually I think she still knows it's me Ed, listening to you talk today, it is very hard to equate you uh, with the person who was known in government as the bruiser. Was that an erroneous title? Was it the result of a sort of still a, a pretty much a kind of macho culture in politics that, that, that has changed? Was it a role foisted on you? There's always, um, there's always a bit of kind of physical caricature in in politics and you know if you think of the way in which cartoons show politicians and you know I've got a size 17 and a half neck I mean it kind of makes me a bruiser that's you know my collar size and then in all those years in the treasury the treasury says no a lot and we were saying no to people sometimes and that reputation carries on and then you know David Cameron as prime minister was was very macho in his style in the house of commons and you know I fought back a bit and uh, part of me kind of regrets that now. I don't, I don't look back at that particularly edifying time, but um, it's how it was and I was doing my best. And uh, so people have to see beyond the caricature and wonder what the real you is. And, uh, and it, it, it's never for me to tell others. It's for them to make their own mind up. But you say it wasn't a particularly edifying time in politics. You could argue that very little has changed. I mean, if you if you look at, at the debates going on in, in in Westminster at the moment, would you say that that that, that we have a whole new caring, sharing, yin yang uh, environment in 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 the ha- House of Commons? Well, the the tone of most politics, which people see, is set by the Prime Minister and Prime Minister's questions, and that tone differs. Prime Minister to Prime Minister. And I think it was a bit different when Theresa May was the, the Prime Minister. But, you know, yeah, it's pretty shouty and pretty macho. There has been a change, I think, in politics over the um, my time seeing it and that people now do talk more openly about um, mental health issues or challenges they faced in their, their lives. You know, I struggled early on as a minister with a stammer. Um, I still do, but 
back then it would have been unacceptable to talk about it. And then when I decided to do so, I, it, that felt risky and that would feel um, easier now. If we don't see politicians as human beings and see them as weird, how are we going to inspire the next generation of young people to go into politics? And a democracy needs people to think politics is a noble cause. But that also means that politicians themselves have to think about how they act and uh, behave. And if they always give the impression they're right, even when they're not sure, and if they never ever say, I made a mistake, or that they don't talk about dilemmas, challenges or problems, then that I think probably feels kind of distancing for the public as well. So there was a responsibility on politicians too, to um, try and be, be, be more open in the way in which they conduct themselves. Tell me about um, your television career. Did you ever imagine that you would have this second life as a television presenter? And, and what is it about it that, that appeals to you? I mean, you clearly do quite like being in the public eye. Look, I mean, if you told me that I would... Uh, be in a TV studio with Mary Berry baking souffles uh, on Best Home Cook and then publish a book called Appetite with Recipes. I wouldn't have believed that or that I would have climbed Kilimanjaro with Little Mix or been on Done Gangnam Style and Strictly Come Dancing. Those things are fun and um, and I've enjoyed them and they're things which I've, different passions I've been able to um, to enjoy. And if other people can smile I know that in my mum's care home, every now and then when it's a grey day in February, they'll put on Gangnam Style and all the residents will smile. And that's kind of, it's a good thing to do in life. That's that's a, a nice thing to have contributed to other people. Um, the thing I miss about politics is the purpose of it, the seriousness. And when I was in the cabinet minister, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done, but it was, it was important and we did important things. And I guess the television programmes, which allow me to also get to some of that purpose. I mean, the... the uh, the films I've done have been immersive and they've always had some fun in them. Um, that moment in on Monday um, in this first episode of the social care film, where three in the afternoon, I go into a, the, the living room and the blinds have just been pulled down and the residents are all swaying as the lights flash. And this guy in a full white bodysuit sings Heartbreak Hotel. <laughs> and then 10 minutes later, he's taken off his white suit. He's back in uniform when we do the medication round. And that is what happens in care homes all the time. And I'll often get photos from my mums to say, from mums carers to say, um, they've had the visit of the llamas today. And there'll be llamas in the living room. And my mum looking at, the, at these llamas, with this sort of <laughs> why. But that's what happens because there's fun and entertainment. And to be able to move from the fun and the entertainment to then... The, the things which are serious and not serious in terms of me saying, here's what I think, but allowing people to see things they hadn't seen before, whether that's Trump voters or the far right in Spain or um, the reality of being a, commensia, a, 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 a carer for somebody with severe, severe dementia. And then for us to, as viewers to think, what do I make of that? How does that change what I think? Uh, and how does it change what I think government should be doing? That in a different way, um, is, is purposeful for me and it, it's it's enjoyable um, but it's also you know, I hope at the margin will make people think differently and that's a um, a good thing to be to be allowed to do and television gives me that opportunity. 
you're a you're a father of three children. Uh, I think when you and your wife Yvette Cooper were in government, they were all under eight years old, which must have been quite the challenge and unbelievably stressful. Do you think we acknowledge enough the other side of political life that the pressure MPs uh, and in particular cabinet ministers are under? I mean, it's not it's not fashionable to urge compassion for them, but do you think that I suppose compassion is never a, a bad thing? Are um, all of our three children who are kind of much older now than when we were in the cabinet had have had a um, you know a tough couple of weeks because the the death of um, the the murder of David Amos for them triggers them right back to um, what happened when Joe Cox died, which was the constituency next to my old one, and we now have thickened glass and special mailboxes and alarms because there have been been lots of threats against against many MPs, including against um, Yvette, people given custodial sentences for the threats against her. And that's something which the family lives with all the time and worries about. And I, I, um, I don't think Yvette has ever asked for compassion for her, but, 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 but in order to do this job, you have to put your family through, through things which is, is hard for them and they didn't choose. And so I do feel kind of, kind of worry and compassion about that. And I think also... The way in which Parliament has changed over the last 15 years has made it much harder for um, for women coming into politics to stay in politics with young children. And, Why? Um, because I think that um, the rules around moving between your constituency and Parliament have become much tighter and more restrictive. And there is this expectation, and my, my view is this is an expectation, the way in which the system is now run, that you should, that, that you should live in your constituency and trouble, travel to London to attend Parliament. But if you are a mum with three kids under five and you're supposed to leave them on a Sunday night and not return until Thursday night because it's a 200-mile train journey, that is, um, that is tough. I, mean, I think it's tough for mums and dads, but the reality was the old model that you know, the man left his wife and kids in the constituency and came down to London for the sitting of parliament, we've kind of gone back to the way, to that model a little bit in terms of the way which we fund and support MPs. That's a consequence of the expenses scandal. People abuse the expenses, but the consequences, I think it's made it harder for, um, for young parents to balance work and family life. And uh, we've had lots of stories of, of, of women deciding, particular deciding that it was too hard to carry on as, as an MP balancing work and family life in the way, I mean, it was a real struggle for me and a vet, but I think it's got harder. So I worry about that. I don't think it's a, it's a good thing. And the combination of, you know, the, the organizational and financial challenge combined with um, the threats and the fear. I mean, I want the next generation of men and women to want to be politicians. We're a democracy. We get the politicians we deserve. And if we decide that um, this is, you know, um, a disreputable profession, those are the people who end up coming into it. Are any of your kids interested in becoming politicians or have they seen too much of what, what it entails, as you just described? I think, um, I think that's for them to, 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 to decide and to talk about. And you know, we, we made a very deliberate decision at the very beginning um, when Yvette was first, you know, as a government minister, pregnant with our, um, our children, that, that, that they would be private individuals and there are no photos of them with me and Yvette. We've never posed with them anywhere. 
Um, we never refer to their names. Our oldest daughter said to me once, the most important thing for me when I walk across the playground, Dad, is I need to be me first rather than being the daughter of Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper in the cabinet. And I think we've always respected that. And so you know, I would love it if my kids wanted to be politicians, but that must be not only their choice but their and their decision, but their their opportunity to um, to talk about if they ever do. And it's not for me to start publicly speculating about them. That's because they're their own, they are their own people. For listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4, on Times Radio. Catch you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.